Hey everybody, welcome one more time to Encounter Church. We are so glad that you are here with us today. My name is Dirk, preaching pastor here at Encounter. And uh, somebody's going to hand you one of these. Uh, I think the ushers in the back or at the, uh, the starting point table uh, just lists out like all those groups that we just saw in the video. And I have the distinct pleasure all the time of hearing how God works in these smaller close-knit communities. And so I get to hear the stories all the time that God is telling through the lives of the people in these groups. So just from that alone, I would love for you all to get plugged in, get connected into one of those groups so that you can, you can be the recipient of a story that God is telling through you. But that's sort of beside the point. This morning we're here to continue this series called Brave. Now, remember in this series, it's a story that we're taking a look at, at what courageous um, uh, bravery looks like, this, this biblical sort of concept of bravery. And we're doing that by looking at one of the most uh, courageous and brave stories in the Bible, I think, which is the story of Daniel, or at least the story recorded in the book of Daniel. Okay, so this morning we're going to do one of, the, one of the stories in Daniel that's probably one of the most well-known stories in the entire Bible. In fact, there's all these lists that come out all the time about the stories that people recognize, whether they go to church or maybe they don't go to church, of the stories in the Bible that are just registered the highest. Oh yeah, I know that one. And every time one of those lists comes out, this story, this morning's story, is on the top of one of those lists. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego getting put in the fiery furnace. But we're more interested this morning is the kind of, of biblical bravery or the, the, the courage that it takes based on who God is and what God is doing that leads them to that point where they're even willing to face the furnace. And to get to that point, I have to get us kind of all on the same page and say that someone told me something a while ago that was really important, really helpful for me that I wanted all of you to know. And that person, they told me they told me that everybody, regardless of your background, that I don't know, you know, or where you came from, every single one of us falls into one of three different categories. Either you are in a hard time furnace moment right now, or you're just coming out of a hard time, a furnace moment, or, and this is the hardest one, is that you're going to be entering into a hard time or a furnace moment in the future. We all fall into one of those three categories. Maybe it's a couple at a time. Maybe we're just coming out of and just entering in. But it's like a promise of life that these furnace moments will happen. And this story this morning, I think, could be hugely formative and hugely helpful for you all. When that furnace moment comes and you rediscover whose you are, not just who you are, in those furnace moments, you learn something about God's presence or absence in your life. And so I hope that you come back to this message. I hope you come back, even more importantly than that, to the story that God tells in Daniel chapter 3. In fact, we're going to go there right now. Daniel chapter 3, it uh, follows us last week from Daniel chapter 2 because we're not creative around here uh, that much. So we're just kind of chugging right along in the story of Daniel. The words are going to be on the screen behind me. There's also Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. And every week, some of those go missing, and we love that. So if you don't have a Bible at home or if you just like ours better, Go ahead and take it with you. I think they're pretty great, but that's just me. That's our gift to you. Daniel chapter 3, it starts off, and this is why I think it's so important to know that it starts off from Daniel chapter 2, because the first line in Daniel chapter 1, or sorry, 3, verse 1 is this. King Nebuchadnezzar, that's the guy in charge in Babylon, made an image of gold. And now it was 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. No idea how big a cubit is. Think like a foot and a half. 90 foot tall 
statue, not that he's compensating for anything, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. It was a risky joke, but I just went for it anyway. Now, I say that, I say that, but, but there's a specific reason why he wanted this nine-story tall statue of himself made out of gold. For some of you who were with us last week in Daniel chapter 2, remember the, the dream that he had? Actually, it was a nightmare that he had where, that, where there was a head of gold and curly bearded because that's just how it all was back then. And then this, this chest of silver and then bronze and iron and clay and the rock, the rock. It was, just, it was such a great like, time last week. I was surprised that anybody came this week because I'm like, we did so much Jesus last week. We're good for two weeks. But thanks for coming back. The rock comes and smashes the clay feet, and the entire statue comes, comes crumbling down. It turns into dust and blows away. And so Nebuchadnezzar thinks like, oh, man, Daniel, you're telling me that that statue is all about the kingdoms of the world, and I'm that gold head. And, and then someday a rock, another kingdom is going to come. Jesus is going to come. And like all these kingdoms will just sort of be like dust in the world compared to the kingdom that will never diminish and never go away. Well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go ahead and build that statue that I saw in my dream. I mean, this isn't just going to be a dream. I'm going to, I'm going to fulfill it myself. I'm going to build a 90-foot tall statue of myself, except for instead of it being of all these different materials to, to represent all these different kingdoms of the world, I'm just going to build the whole thing out of gold because you told me that I'm the gold head. So all of the kingdoms of the world are all going to be gold all throughout. And if a rock, the rock does come and crash into the feet, it's made out of gold. So it's not going to come crashing and crumbling down like that, like that feet of clay did in the dream that I had. It's a genius plan, and there's no way that it's ever going to fail, except in verse 8. <laughs> he goes on. He goes on. But, but we're focusing on the statue now and what he's trying to do. So in verse 4, he goes, Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of, and he just like lists them off, all of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and everything else, all other music. This is, by the way, what happens if I'm ever in charge of worship. We're just going to bring it all out and just go for it, which is probably why I'm not allowed to do that. But when you hear the crash of all of the instruments, you must fall down. And worship the image of gold, probably not solid gold, just gold-plated, but that's the technicality, that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You must fall down and worship this gold statue. You could just imagine the scene. The whole nation, all these people, thousands of people, out in a desert, in a plain, Dura, just outside this city. And the scene is that they've got this massive, 90-foot-tall gold statue of Nebuchadnezzar right up front center. And just to the left... There's Nebuchadnezzar himself with his entourage. And then up to the right, they've got this blazing furnace. It's just cranked up. And they say, everybody, there's going to be a pregnant pause. And then when those instruments crash, when everything chimes in, hit the deck, everybody bows down in honor to this gold statue. And if you don't, we've got a contingency plan for that too, verse 6. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into that blazing furnace. That paints an image, right? I mean, that's a memorable scene. And that's the point. Get everybody out there, this mass, this sea of humanity. And then as soon as those instruments hit it, it's like, it's like a wave flows through that sea of humanity and everybody bows down, lays down, 
before the statue. Everybody, except three guys. Three guys stay standing. Now, you know their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel's friends stay standing. Now, this is a bit tangential and beside the point, but I just, I want to make sure that, I want to make sure to say it because I think it's going to be helpful to somebody, and you never know what happens with these. So, I've got to tell you, Daniel doesn't actually make an appearance in Daniel chapter 3. Like, he's kind of the protagonist of the story. The camera lens sort of follows him. Daniel never shows up in Daniel chapter 3. This story isn't really about him, but it's all about Daniel's friends, and in the context when we're talking about bravery, godly bravery, and biblical courage, I just want to invite you to like think about that moment. The moment that something happened to Daniel and his friends. Something happened in Daniel chapter 1 when he drew that line in the sand and said, this far, no further. Something happened with that, with that dream and Daniel courageously telling the king bad news, which nobody would ever want to do. His friends were paying attention. And the courage that Daniel had was somehow contagious, and it spread to his friends. So I want to ask you, like, your biblical courage, your godly bravery, is it worth replicating? If the friends that you came here with or the friends that you came to to meet here or the friends that you're going to see tonight or tomorrow at work, if they see your heart, do you have a faith? Worth replicating in another life, in someone else's life, or not. And that's kind of beside the point. Daniel actually, he did. His friends caught wind of that, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they thought absolutely inspired by it, wanted to see God there. And so when everybody hits the deck, these three guys courageously stay standing. Let me ask like a follow-up question. You don't have to out loud, you know, just in your head, that's fine. How old do you imagine these three guys you know, when everybody else, a sea of humanity is laying down before this, before this gold idol, how old do you imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I think like 40? That sounds, you know, about right, maybe. They're pretty courageous, maybe, maybe 30 or so. Anybody guess 14? <laughs> He's like, you know, ninth graders, these boys. And they, they couldn't drive, let alone, well, they couldn't drive for a lot of different reasons. I mean, this is like, <laughs> that's beside the point. But 14 years old, you know, maybe 15, you kind of like backtrack this up, you know, they were taken into exile, they didn't really take people from middle age into exile because they're sort of a little more, a little more set in, in, in their beliefs and, and things, they were less malleable, so they were probably, you know, 10, 11 when they got taken into exile, they did like the three-year program, it's after that sometime, but it doesn't seem like real long, so like 14, 15 years old, these boys. Anything like that is incredible. Now, again, I just I have to I have to sort of say this because we have been accused of being a young church in the past. I know it's crazy. That's right, thirty-three. But people have said that, and if people, you know, if you're like, I'm not actually that old. You're young at heart for being here, and we love that too. Uh, so I need to. I feel like I need to say this: that it seems like God has this way of of using people who are less experienced than some others. I mean, he uses people that, that have these faults or, or defects about them. There's maybe a moral flaw. Actually, there's always some sort of moral flaw in all the characters, not heroes. They're all villains except for one guy, but we'll get to him in just a minute. But, but like everybody that God tends to use 
They have all some sort of like drawback, a, cr- a critical flaw to them of some kind. And often it's experience and often it comes down to simple like age. In fact, it seems like God prefers to use people that are like, I don't know, he's really too young and inexperienced to, to really have done anything. Jeremiah, the book of the author of Jeremiah, the book, is a great example. You know, in the first chapter, in verse 5, I think, God comes to him and says, the word of the Lord to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah's first initial response, this is how you know it's going to be a great prophet. He goes, I should not be a prophet. <laughs> he goes, I'm too young. And of course, God responds to that and saying, listen, dude, you're not going to tell me how to do my job. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, okay, okay. And Jeremiah, uh, you know, does his prophet work in the book, gets written. The rest is history. Uh, Timothy is another case. In the New Testament, Paul is starting all these churches, and one of them really takes off in his his church in Ephesus, and Timothy is installed there as the pastor as Paul moves on. Timothy is this young guy, and everybody's like, who's this guy? You know, he's not capable of leading us, and they've got all kinds of problems, all all kinds of issues in the church, like every church. And so Paul writes this letter to young Timothy, and he goes, hey, Timothy, here's some advice from somebody who's been through it in the past. Timothy, don't let, and his godly advice is from God himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Timothy, do not let anybody look down on you because you're young, Timothy. Timothy, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, but in everything, in speech, in life, in conduct, in faith, in purity, in all of it, Timothy, set an example for the believers. Set an example for everybody else. And then you just think like, like God has this way of using people who are probably far too young to be used by God, we would imagine, except for God in his infinite wisdom, chooses to use them, and probably those of you who are young at heart. And so I just, I want to take a stab why I think that tends to be the case. There's a lot of reasons, but the one I want to tell you today, and I'm going to say this with as much, you have to believe this comes from a deeply loving place. I think God chooses to use really inexcusably young people to accomplish these huge things, because they're too dumb to know any difference. Like, I just, hang on, just give me a second, just give me a second. Before, nobody leave, lock the doors. We can't really lock the doors. That's not, that's not. Bef- let, me pe- let me fill that out a little bit. I think the reason why God tends to use these young people with inexperience is because they haven't yet grown up and become like jaded and, and bitter. They haven't yet had that experience where, where they, they, they waited on God to show up and to provide certain outcome, X, Y, or Z, and that God never provided that X, Y, or Z. They've never filled, they've never lived through that season of life where, where they're just waiting for God to show up in a recognizable way, and he just never does. They're just like, they're just so young, call it inexperience, call it ignorance, but they just like believe, this is an awesome thing, right? They just believe that because God said that he's going to show up, I don't know what it looks like, but you know what? God's going to show up. And I think that's what we get from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are ninth, tenth grade boys. When everybody bows down and worships this idol, and they're going, that violates at least two of the Ten Commandments. No other gods before me. No idols. Nothing in the shape of God. So I'm not going to do it. I don't know what happens, but God... Yeah, it's time for you to show up here. You said you would. And he does. But in kind of a peculiar way. Listen, listen to another verse here. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get called up to talk to the king face to face. And they replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, I love this so much, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. 
We don't need to defend ourselves and we don't need to justify ourselves in this matter. Now, this is, this is so awesome because like, we're reading this in an age where you've got to like, take an, a Facebook poll of your friends before you do anything, right? Before you go somewhere or before you check, like, I'll be there, sign up for a group. Like, you've got to make sure that like, everybody else is going. You've got to like, double check, is this the best offer that I have on the table, right? Because of all the, but no, no, for these guys, they show up and they're just like, you know what? I don't need to think about it. I don't need to pray on it for a season. I know exactly what God expects from me. So I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to justify myself. Now, this is going to be so important. This is so important right here because there are so many ways that you're going to be able to justify yourself before God. So many ways. I know there's a ton of you super smart people and study the Bible, and, and you know this already, so I don't feel bad telling you because otherwise you're going to figure it out some ways. You can always justify yourself somehow before God. You can go before God and you can say, you know what? When those horns and the lyre and the trumpet and the everything else and the, probably the electric guitar and the bass, when everything hit and everybody bowed down, you know, I bowed down too, and you know why, God? Because even though everybody, every single one of us was bowing down with our bodies, God, my heart was still standing for you. Even though my body was laying down before that idol and I knew that that's questionable behavior that, that you were calling out in general, my, my, heart, my heart was standing up tall and proud for it. You were doing my fingers, you know, were crossed behind my back. I was faking it the whole time. You know, I wasn't really in it. There's a way that you can justify it. It's a way that you can defend yourself before God. You know, in fact, there's, there's so many more ways that you could defend yourself. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these guys graduated the King program, right? They did the three-year thing. They got their, their big job at the end of it where they have all this, this influence and all this power that's like coming their way as they continue to live into this new job. They could defend themselves. They could justify themselves easily by saying, yeah, if I bow down now, like we're thrown into the fire, we're cooked, we're done. No, I mean, it's kind of funny. I thought, there's no way. But, but, because of my witness, because of my faithful witness, you know, I'm going to bow down now so that I can live to tell people about the love of God later. I can justify this so many ways. I can justify this so many ways because I can just say, you know what? You know what? I read these stories of God in the Bible and he is loving and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding to love. That he, he forgives again and again and again. And you know who's not slow to anger? You know who's not abounding in love? You know who's not quick to forgive? Nebuchadnezzar. I've seen what that guy does. History books, now outside of the Bible, tell the stories of just what Nebuchadnezzar is capable of. The furnace thing is the very beginning. Nebuchadnezzar didn't get to the place that he is by being kind and compassionate to his enemies. Nebuchadnezzar is not slow to anger and abounding in love. So if I'm going to like disobey one of them, I'm going to go with Nebuchadnezzar because God's always going to forgive me. He has to. He wrote it down in his book. He will forgive you even at the last minute. So we like, we hedge. And it's so easy to justify ourselves and say, you know what? Disobedience now and forgiveness later. Disobedience now, forgiveness later. There's so many ways that you could cut this. There's so many ways that you could justify it. And if I could just offer this piece, so important of advice, please, please, don't. Don't justify it. 
don't defend yourself. Don't try to find some wiggle room. Don't try to get out of it. Now, I don't think that you're in this season or moment in life where you're, somebody's asking you to bow down to you know, a 90-foot-tall statue of Nebuchadnezzar, but maybe there's a football analogy or something in that somewhere. But like, something is going on in life that's asking you to break one of the Ten Commandments. It might not be the first or second one like it had been so explicitly, but I don't know, the, the fourth one? I'm so great at remembering the Sabbath day. It's that tricky other part about keeping it holy. You know, that, 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 that. what about the adultery? And it's like, well, no, no, no. I mean, that's a little, I'm waiting for, but looking, there's nothing wrong with looking, right? And Jesus says, no, that's included too in his Sermon on the Mount. I was like, whatever, Whatever the pressure is, you can say, we don't know, but I've got a reason. I've got an out. It's for my witness later, and I know that God is compassionate and forgiving. I've, I've, I'm, was, my heart wasn't in it. I was faking it the whole time. Like, whatever the thing is that inside of you that just wants to justify yourself or wants to defend yourself, I'm just saying, don't. Don't do it. Because it's in that moment, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Benedict moment, those furnace moments, when the heat gets turned up and you get really deeply uncomfortable that you experience something that you will never experience anywhere else. And if you just leave with one line from today and you forget everything else about this message, I hope that you know that an untested faith may actually be an untrustworthy faith. And the opposite of that is that a tested faith is a trusted faith. And a tested faith, faith becomes that way in those furnace moments when it becomes really difficult, when there's something sacrificing at play, when there's a part of you that you have to die to, the heat is turned up. It's that moment that a faith becomes a tested faith and therefore then a trusted faith. This is so cool. Let me, let me read you this. This comes from 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 7. And some context on this, you have to know that Peter is writing to some people who are in the thick of it. I mean, these people, there's a persecution like the world hasn't seen before. And Peter's writing to them. And one of the things he says, verse 7, like starting off his book, he says, by the way, they, these furnace moments, these sufferings, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than, than gold, by the way, which, perish, which perishes even through refined fire. These things have happened so that the proven genuineness may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Here, here's, the, here's a tradition kind of behind the significance of this, of this passage is that these furnace moments is like a literal, as Peter says, furnace moments, not just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but for Peter and the Christians too, because he's referencing this like silversmith or goldsmith that would put like, you know, this chunk of stuff in a, in a pot and put it in the furnace, heat it up, melt it down, pull it out of the furnace, and all the like the, the non-gold or the non-silver would like float up to the top, and he'd take like this big butter knife thing, and he'd just like, like scrape off all the junk that doesn't belong right? And then he'd put it back in the furnace. Let's bake it more, melt it down, apply that intense, intense heat into the pot and everything that's in, and pull it out again. And all the little defects and everything that doesn't belong, all that junk, he'd scrape it off again. He'd just repeat, 
You know, furnace and out, furnace and out, furnace and out, again and again and again, for as many times as it takes so that one moment, so that one point would come when the silversmith or the goldsmith goes in to the furnace and pulls out that melted pot. And this time, when he looks in, he doesn't see a whole bunch of crud or junk that doesn't belong, defects and imperfections. The only thing that that silversmith sees when he pulls that pot out is his own reflection and what's left behind. That's why that I say it is so incredibly important for you not to justify yourself, not to defend yourself when the furnace moments of life come. Because God is putting you in the furnace and taking you out and putting you in the furnace and taking you out. And each time he's scraping away the crud that doesn't belong, the moments of unfaith along the way, each time he's scraping all these junk and imperfections off from the metal that is your life, your faith, Until one day, one moment, he's going to look into the pot that is your life, and he is going to see himself, Jesus Christ, revealed in your life. And so I just beg, I plead you, the furnace of moments, furnace moments of life come, please, please, don't, don't deny God that. Don't deny the world the opportunity to peer into the pot of your life. And to see, as Peter tells us, Jesus Christ revealed. Don't let yourself off the hook. Don't justify yourself. Don't defend yourself. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't run away from it. Oh, no. In fact, they stood right up to it. And they said along the way in in verse 17, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, and at this moment, at this moment, it tells us that they can actually feel the intense heat of the furnace burning next to them on the right side. And they say, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. The God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will. God is able to deliver us. I mean, just how amazing is that in the furnace moments? How amazing is that? For, from the thing that whatever, some of you are walking in a journeying through right now where the heat's turned up and the furnace moments of life, like how, how incredible is it to hear that God is able to deliver you from it? When the medical diagnosis comes in and it doesn't look good, God is able to heal you from it. When the broken relationship is, is marred yet further and the strained friendship or marriage just becomes that much more evident to hear that God is able to deliver you from it and to heal you and to restore you. How incredible is it to hear that, that, that God is able to do the financial setback and, and the empty bank account or the job thing or the underemployment, the, the looking for something new and it's just not coming. Like how incredible to hear the story in God's word of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ninth grade boys standing up to the king of the land and saying, God is able to provide and he always has. And I believe he always will. I just don't know how. Essentially, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do is they go before the king, and simply what they're saying is this one line that I hope, I hope we remember. This one line that says, you know what? Obedience is our job. 
In fact, that's so important, we're going to say that a couple times, okay? Obedience is our job. Ready? One, two, three. Obedience is our job. Again, obedience is our job, but outcome is his. The obedience is our job, and God's job is the outcome. These boys, they get it. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego continue on in verse 18, and they say, God is able, but even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve up, we will not serve your gods or worship the image that you've set up. God is able to deliver us But even if he doesn't, the outcome is still in God's hands. That takes faith. That takes a kind of courage. That takes a kind of bravery that that looks so far beyond this world and so far beyond what we think of when we think of faith. We think of faith like a rabbit's foot to like rub and get what we want. Or God as a genie squished into a lamp that's subject to our wishes and has to grant us certain things. But, but this one looks so far beyond even of this world and looks on into eternity. He said, obedience is my job, but the outcome is God's job. So in preparation of today, because I knew that Boy, this is just, it's tough. It's really, really hard. So getting ready for today, can revisit this, this book that's probably required reading for any kind of message like this. It's a book written by Philip Yancey. Um, it's, called, uh, it's called Where's God When It Hurts? And in the book, Yancey tells the story of, of Brian uh, Sternberg, who's this pole vaulter in, in the Seattle, Washington area. Again, you know, high school kid. And he's breaking world records in pole vaulting. In fact, he's not just breaking them. He is like shattering them. Widely expected to go on the Olympic team next year and fly to Japan. This is the 1960s. And just win gold, clean up at at his competition. Everybody knows that and they expected it. But he plays another sport too. In order to stay in shape, he's also a gymnast. And so he's jumping on the trampoline, just kind of getting his routines in and getting his his body down. And he does this move. He's done it countless times, hundreds of times. It's a forward roll with a a half twist, and you come down. He's done this thing so many times, it's just exercise for him at this point, like jogging for many of us. And he does this move, only he lands this much off axis. He comes on funny. He hears a crack in his neck, and he can't move his legs or his arms, and he can barely even breathe. They get him to the hospital, and over the next few months, the doctors essentially tell him that they could do really nothing for him. And he's reflecting on the pain, and he goes, the pain, the pain, the pain is oscillating between extremely painful and excruciating. They, they got him in, in what's called a, a, a canvas sandwich where they've got two uh, gurneys, essentially, strapped onto either side of him so that the nurse and the attendants can, can flip him so that he doesn't get bed sores on one side or the other. You know, months go by, and, and, and the strange thing happens, and, and lots of people say it's true for them too, or in a similar situation, they say, it's almost like I, like I grow these, these phantom limbs. And so he, he could just he lie there, and he imagined that he had working use of his arms, and he imagined himself holding a basketball. 
And he was is gripping onto it. And at first he said it just brought him so much hope and joy because in his mind, at least, he, he could feel the, the leather of the ball and the, the dimples and the, and the dots on the, and the groove in the basketball. And he's just he's so hopeful that, that maybe someday he could actually touch a basketball one more time. But over the course of the next year, his mind slowly started to forget what a movement of the ball was like. And, and his mind started to forget what a ball, a basketball, the leather ball felt like. And so his mind started to, to meld his, his hand along with the ball. And, and in his mind, he couldn't, he couldn't shake it and he couldn't pull it off anymore. And, and then and in his, his mind not only was was tricking him into, into thinking that, that his hands were now infused with this ball, but that the ball turned into these razor blades, and the razor blades were now cutting him up the arms and the legs. And of course, he couldn't feel what was happening in his legs or in his arms because of his paralysis, but, but, but his mind didn't know that, and his mind told them about the excruciating pain that he was in constantly. And, and through it all, through it all, Brian never made an ultimatum before God. Brian never said, you heal me, God, and I'll believe. No, no, he said, through it all, I believe. But when Yancey talked to him the first time, he said, every day, every single day, I wake up and I pray that God would heal me. And I believe God wants to heal me. It's almost like his faith depended on it. Yancey was a bit troubled by that. But he goes away. He revisits 15 years later. Now, the first time he was in his mid-20s, now he's almost 40. He's got a different disposition to him. And he asks him specifically how things are first. And he said, you know what? Um, God has started to answer that prayer that I have to heal me. I have, I have three more inches of, of feeling in, in my arms now, in the upper chest. And it is such a gift because, because I can feel in my fingers and my feet. I can't move them, but I can at least feel, which, which helps dramatically with the hallucinations and the torment that I was in. And so, so I thank God for that. And, and he goes, you know what? I still wake up every day. And I pray that God would heal me. And then I pray, simply give me, or simply give me peace of mind where I am. And Yancey looks at Brian, then he goes, now that is a courageous faith. That's a kind of bravery, biblical bravery, of somebody that looks at the face of severe torment, in furnace moments of life, when the heat's turned up, and that's the guy who says, obedience is my job, but the outcome, the outcome belongs to God. You know, so often, we open up the Bible, you might open up the Bible, and you'd go there for inspiration. You'd go to, to Hebrews chapter 11, right? If you learned it as cheesily as I did, it was the Hall of Faith, right? Which is the Hall of Fame, but for Christians, we've got to make everything worse, so we call it the Hall of Faith. So, and you just, you read through Hebrews 11, you say, Abraham, right? You got these Moses, you got these heroes of the faith, stories where God did the impossible, where God provided a miracle, stories, stories. 
stories where God moved mountains on the behalf of these people who simply had faith. And when those stories happen, those are the stories that we tell, isn't it? Those are the stories that of books we buy. Those are the stories of the conference speakers that we go to because we want to see and we want to experience how God moved in their life. But friends, that's only half the story. Because as one author said, the other half of the story isn't people that God miraculously healed and mountains he moved on their behalf. The other half of the story is people who are set on fire or people who are sawed in two. The other half of the story is people who are stoned to death. The other half of the story is full of God's people, God's hand-picked hero people that God chose to tell a story to that didn't turn out too well and they didn't write a book about it and they're not a conference speaker. In fact, we shudder to tell their stories because, because we look at them and they say, no, 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 God never left me in that moment even though I could never escape it except by death. And then beyond is when God brought healing. And then it's where God brought victory. And even in the beyond, that is the moment that God made everything right again once more. That's the kind of faith, that's the kind of courageous faith who looks in the eye of all of that and says, faith is more than a rabbit's foot to be wished on. Faith is more than a God being a genie stuffed in a lamp to do my bidding. That's the kind of faith that looks at God as an active and a real God who's the creator and who's the redeemer and who's the sustainer of the whole universe. And that's the kind of God that we want to control outcomes. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these boys, looked at the fire, felt the heat, and said, bring it, because one way or another, God's going to show up. And he did. Verse 24, Jesus is revealed. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar, after he put these boys in the furnace and turned it up seven times hotter, King Nebuchadnezzar, he, he leaps to his feet, in amazement, he asks his advisor standing them, I'm sorry, weren't there three men we tied up and threw in the fire? He replied, certainly, your majesty, he said. Look, look, but I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed. And you know what? The fourth one looks like the son of the gods. Jesus shows up. Jesus is revealed in the furnace. Jesus shows up in those moments. God is there. So this week when that moment comes, this week when things get really, really hard, Jesus is revealed. Is that Jesus never left you in the valley. He never forsook you in the furnace, but he walked with you and walks with you through the valley of the shadow of death. Everything that is beyond. Tested faith is a trustworthy faith on into eternity. I invite you to stand up. Let's pray together. Let's pray to that God who controls outcomes, that God who has so much in his hands. Let's pray specifically this week that God 
is going to find a new way to remind each and every one of us that, that obedience is our job, the outcome is his job, and may we have the faith this week to say, I wouldn't have it any other way.